0: You know, you ask someone, oh, how are you doing? Oh, so busy. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's we want to feel like our time's worthwhile. So, you know, wouldn't you love to hear it and, and wouldn't we be in a happier state if people said, how are you doing? Oh, did nothing today. I just sat there and sat on my thoughts and, and you know, I'm feeling great. Feeling contemplative yeah. as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. How, 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 how happy would that society be?
1: Mike Wordsman is a journalist and filmmaker who's been around the world on a mission to capture the essence of happiness. Maybe, you know, by understanding
0: his story, it might inspire some people maybe in Australia to be grateful for what they have, and then they might smile more.
1: That project is A Million Smiles, a massive collection of footage and photos taken of people from diverse communities relishing life. It all started because Mike was enthralled by the question of happiness. What is it and what can we do to spread love and joy so that we might all feel connected? Mike knows the power of a smile better than most and has learned to see the light in the world through the darkness that once nearly brought him to end his life.
0: You know, but this crazy dream's become
1: this this thing that's filled my
0: heart and filled every piece of me.
1: There are some real gems in this conversation that might well be just what you need to hear. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. Uh, let's start with your teenage years. Who were you then?
0: I guess my teenage years were, were pretty difficult. Uh, I, I grew up in Adelaide, and through a number of deaths in our family, actually, I guess, um, you know, my my father began to question, you know, whether or not him working 60 hours a week to make lots of money for people was sort of the right approach to life, particularly after his brother died, you know, sort of young and unexpectedly from cancer. Um, And then that sort of pushed our family to to go through, uh, I guess, a bit of a midlife crisis together in some ways. My parents decided that they'd go on a trip around Australia and see if there was maybe somewhere else um, that they might want to live that was perhaps uh, like an eco village or or some sort of a different way of living more communally. So for six months during my first, during year seven, I was on the road with my my parents and my brother and they they returned with this idea of going and living in Queensland. and, And that was pretty difficult. Adelaide had been home and I was about to go into high school and had all my mates around and um, that had really been a huge support because I guess my parents throughout this process maybe were, were off in their own realm of their dreams and uh, we'd always had, I guess, uh, some issues with my brother and sister and, you know, it, it was pretty difficult. I started to feel more alone as we as we ended up moving up to Queensland. My brother stayed in Adelaide and, and my other two sisters as well stayed in Adelaide, you know, despite them being really quite young. So, I was, I was by myself and, and, you know, I'd always made friends easily and that was fine but, yeah, that, that sort of year 8 to year 10 that I was in Queensland was, was pretty tough just because I'd seen a lot of what I didn't want to become in my brother particularly. Um, he'd sort of been a straight A student, but had got carried away some of the wrong people and, and started sort of to become an addict of marijuana and, and you know, later on alcohol. And it was pretty, pretty difficult when my friends started to want to get into that stuff as well up in Queensland. I mean, I was living in a rural area called Jinjin and, um, you know, it was one of the sort of poorest postcodes in Queensland. Pauline Hanson's very popular in that area. So the, you can sort of get an understanding of who was living in that area. Um, we were in a, an eco village, which was sort of like a little pocket of something a bit different to, I guess, a lot of the, the sort of farming families in, of the area. But I guess it just slowly isolated me, which was a strange phenomenon because mm-hmm. I'm such a social person. So that was sort of what led me to, to go down a pretty dark path. I really felt abandoned, I guess, by my parents because they had chosen their dreams above maybe mine and my other siblings. And, and that's, that's been, you know, something that we've talked about a lot because I'm, I'm writing a book, uh, you know, at the moment and, and my parents have really reflected on that and said, yeah, look, you know, we, maybe we shouldn't have done that. But I actually love that they did because it taught me to chase my dreams as well. So whilst it was painful in those teenage years, it's really sort of, I guess, uh, played a big part in who I am today and the fact that, you know, I'm I'm sort of willing to to go and do things that maybe a lot of people might not be willing to do because my parents showed me the way that maybe this, you know, nine to five and just grinding it out for money isn't maybe the be all and end all that's going to lead us to a happy life. So, it took a lot of pain in my teenage years, but, you know, I'm, I'm a really happy person today and certainly living my absolute dream. So, yeah, I guess that's one of the other things is that, you know, from pain I think we can learn a lot. I could see my brother's pain, for instance. I could see my sister's pain at times, you know, and, and that taught me that maybe I should be grateful for the fact that I haven't had to go through some of uh, the suffering that, that they have and, and that they continue to, to sort of go through. So, yeah, it was it was a difficult time up there, um, but uh, I think I'm a better person today for that.
1: So you're isolated within an isolated community can you just go into <laughs> what that looks what that looked yeah. like for you is that because you sort of refused to get into what uh, the people around you were getting into
0: yeah look my brother ended up moving up to to queensland and he sort of you know i was very cross about it at the time he sort of you know at times um, gave drugs to people that I was friends with, and and that was a terrible thing. And I I was really cross that he had done that. But people were starting to get into that sort of thing anyway. And so I was living basically in a community of, I'd say about like 200 houses, a little eco village within a pretty small community of 3,000 people in Jinjin. And I love the arts. I love politics you know, I, I had a fair understanding of who I was by then. Obviously, I've gone on to become a journalist and filmmaker, which paints who I probably was as a, as a young person as well. As someone that's very creative, always very open about things. And the community that I was living within within the eco village was maybe a bit like that, but sort of going to school when, you know, I enjoyed skateboarding and some of these things that my friends did as well, but I was always a bit different. I, I, you know, not only had I grown up in a city with I guess my parents are very intellectual people very into politics and these sorts of things as well but it, it's a strange feeling because I'd never felt it outside of that in my entire life I know that uh, a lot of people struggle with loneliness but that that little period of a few years I really felt I guess abandoned by my parents which was a sh- hugely bad platform to go from but then also to have you know friends that seemed to be I guess into different things you know I was still friends with them on the surface but I just had different interests that I couldn't really uh, feel like I could openly pursue or talk about with, with many people.
1: And how dark did it get for you then? How old were you? Yeah, look, the darkest day for
0: sure for me came came in uh, year nine. I was up in, in, in our house in Queensland and you know, I just remember hearing, I, I sort of woke up to the phone ringing and I remember hearing my mum my talking in a pretty hysteric sort of a way on the phone and she'd basically been told that my sister had had some sort of problem and was in hospital and I, you know I remember it being about her heart you know and she was suddenly in hospital my sister had been the you know the closest person in my life for a number of years because she sort of really understood that that pain of the isolation I was going through and when I, I woke up in the following morning and realized that uh we weren't going to Adelaide, even though my sister sounded like she was in a pretty cr- crit- critical condition in hospital. That was tough. And I sort of went off at my parents and said, how do you not understand that we need to be there? And I, I, you know, I love my sister. I can't, you know, be up here while she's suffering down there. And what if she dies? And later that night was probably, you know, the, the darkest night, so to speak. You know, my mum said, oh, well, she was going to go down. And I said, well, why can't I come? And, the, you know, there was a lack of money in the family at that point that's sort of where a lot of the previous years of trauma had built up to to sort of thinking well you know should I go on with this life that I'm living and you know there was certainly some suicidal tendencies um, that, that started to creep into my life from that day for for a period of weeks while my sister sort of laid in hospital and and I didn't know whether whether or not she'd be there for me but I guess it was that understanding and seeing a photo actually next to my bed where where I was sort of curled up in a ball and, and, and you know, not really feeling good about life and seeing her photo and thinking, what if she survives? You know, what if she ends up surviving this and I'm gone? You know, how unfair would that be on her because she was someone that was massively more isolated than me and I knew that I was an important figure in her life in terms of, you know, a friend as well as being a brother and, you know, I guess that's what made me reconsider sort of some of the thoughts that were in my head at that, that
1: stage. So I was wanting to be there for other people.
0: Yeah. I I think, you know, I've I've always been someone that that believes uh, in serving other people in serving a greater good. I mean, I I don't belong to a specific religion, but people often think I do um, because I I always talk about service to humanity. And, you know, I think even at, at that young age, I always felt like I was meant to do something more and, You know, a lot of that in those early years was, yeah, just being there for my for members of my family who were going through difficult things, as I was as well. But I think that's one of the things is when we can actually understand that our suffering is not just ours. Everyone around us suffers. This human condition that we're all going through is is sure to to leave everyone with some level of suffering, whether it's a huge amount or, or whether some people are sort of just struggling a day here or a day there. We're all going through this together. And I think when we can appreciate that, which I probably started to in that instant of thinking about my sister actually um, potentially being alone if I decided to go through with some of my suicidal thoughts at that point. Yeah, that that, that was sort of, you know, I guess my one of my awakenings within my life was to go, well, I, I need to actually be in this world in order to create the change that I'd always sort of dreamed of or felt I was here to um,
1: try and help create. Mm. And fast forward to your young adulthood, when did you discover your passion?
0: I was sort of at the end of year 12, not knowing what to do. I wanted to be a masseuse so that I could you know, pursue my dream of becoming a, a painter. But lo and behold, uh, yeah, we didn't have enough money in the family for me to do this $2,000 course. So I went into to uni and I'd got really good grades at, at school, so I knew I'd be able to sort of do anything and I chose five completely different subjects and ended up. You know, in journalism and and doing filmmaking as my sub major, and it's easy looking back, going that was actually what the world wanted me to be mm. doing. You know, and uh, I've obviously uh, made a, a really healthy career in the sense of my happiness. You know, I I probably work twenty or thirty percent of my life at the moment making money, and I work with a lot of different charities in Australia, making videos for them, um, and and helping them to manage some of their online campaigns. Yeah, that's great. And then sort of seventy or eighty percent of my life, you know, I guess is is dedicated to travelling around the world and sharing stories that can inspire people to to sort of chase what makes them happy. So That's Yeah. A good ratio. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it's a great it's it's the sort of ratio that I, I hope we can see more and more as sort of computers and, and technology takes over some of the, the boring, mundane mm. stuff. Um, that I guess you know, a lot of people have previously done in their jobs, and and maybe we can actually start to to go. Well, do we need a universal wage, or some of these things that have been thought about in in certain other really progressive countries, and so that people can spend you know four days a week, for instance, serving the community or just living out who they actually are, not stuck in a cubicle somewhere, uh, not pursuing their purpose on this earth. Because I, I don't think that we're going to ever see a happy world while ever people are sort of forced to fit into these boxes, whether that's the nine-to-five box, whether that's the I'll be a doctor or a lawyer because it sounds good on paper box or whether it's sort of the box of, well, you know, mum and dad want me to do this, so I'll do that. Um, so, yeah, look, li- life's, life's been fascinating. And, um, but I guess we only, you know, sort of make it that way by maybe searching inside ourselves in, in those silent moments for why are we here? You know, it's the most beautiful question for a human mind that can be so curious and look outside and see well, why does the wind blow as it is outside or I don't know, there's, there's so many questions to be asked and, and I think once we start asking some of the questions that come into our mind in those silent moments, uh, that's a great road to start down in terms of
1: happiness. So what became the aim for you after you'd finished uni?
0: well I, I got I landed sort of you know the dream job, so to speak. I was a TV journalist straight out of uni, and um, I, was, I was really upset by what the world that I sort of became a part of of, of going out during the day and, and looking for the most negative, crazy stories that, yeah, are happening. I know that Phil. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah and so I guess I did something really maybe most people would say stupid, um, so I had this dream job on TV and great opportunity and and then decided to quit after five months just because I couldn't be happy with myself being part of that system. And then I worked for the Royal Adelaide Hospital in PR, so sort of saw the other side of the media and saw that, you know, there's this bloodthirst, you know, within the world of journalism. You know, I remember quite often at the hospital every Sunday morning, you know, after the Saturday nights there's been stabbings or there's been incidents or whatever, the journalist would call you on the Sunday morning and, and you'd say, oh, no, actually that person's okay, they've recovered fully or, or the stabbing wasn't as bad as what you might have thought and you'd actually literally hear a sigh from those journalists saying, oh, and it's like, are you serious? I mean, one, one day I, I remember, I can't probably say the swear word that I said to them uh, on, on the podcast, but I said, are you effing serious? I've just told you someone's going to survive after this person's attacked them last night, and you're upset with that? Like, do you remember that you're a human first and maybe a journalist second? It was a world I didn't want to be part of, so I, I started a, a news organisation. I, I got together with a mate of mine from, from university, and um, there was an organisation we started called Our World Today, which was about sharing a more balanced view of the world. A lot of people would want to say we're a positive news organisation, but we sort of were, were about showing I guess the silver lining to things. So, you know, the war in Afghanistan was on at that point. Um, and we, we didn't want to just sort of show the body count. You know, we've killed X number of supposed terrorists and they've killed X number of us. Um, we were sort of saying, well, okay, let's speak to, to some of the, the officers and the army personnel on the ground as we did and ask them, why are they there? What are they actually seeing over in Afghanistan? Is there a purpose to us spending billions of dollars as a country to send people there? are the Taliban everything that we're told that they are, you know, and some of the things that we would hear is, yeah, there's been these IEDs and these sorts of incidents that have traumatised so many people, but there's also, you know, now schools being built by our soldiers over there and there's girls or, or, or young boys going to school for the first time. So I think when the media sort of takes a more balanced approach and actually says, okay, well, humanity's not trying to be bad and most people are not bad every day, we're sort of focusing on that. Uh, I think that that was a really important lesson for me to learn uh, as a young adult and then to be part of our world today to begin with, but then now a million smiles, which is again about sharing stories that can inspire people to sort of dream their own dream and find their own happiness. Yeah, I mean I've come across you know just so many amazing human beings that often we don't see enough on our nightly news broadcast. So that's always been a huge passion of mine and, and making sure that we're highlighting, you know, the true heroes in this world, are, which are often the people like I ended up actually going to Afghanistan and I could, it's a whole other world. I, I've never felt as though my life is under threat and I've been to some other dangerous places, but this was this was a, a whole other ball game and to think that there's millions of people that are forced to live in that, not just in Afghanistan, in Syria, in all these countries around the world that are so devastated by you know I guess the greedy ambitions of certain countries and certain organizations and people um, it's really sad so I guess there's been a lot of things in my life that have opened my eyes but um, and, and made me want to tell the other side of a story so the human face of Afghanistan is what I went there to capture. Um, yeah so it's, it, it's, a, it's a tough world to, to conquer the, the media world but I think you know my role now is sort of putting these beautiful stories out there actually some of the have been covered by the media and and that's you know been been really beautiful to see some of them actually in mainstream press um so that's that's one of my dreams is certainly to inspire that also good news can sell and can go viral online and these sorts of things yeah that's
1: that strikes a chord with me because i'm a tv commercial tv journalist right now yeah and uh know very well that yeah if it bleeds it leads absolutely um and you know it's all about well, it's it's a blending of the facts with entertainment as well and caters to Absolutely. people's lack of attention span and also the yeah. uh the negative conditioning that exists in all of us where we see and mm. are most engaged by threats first of all, out of a out of a will to survive Absolutely. And, and see danger and, and not be um you know not be put in danger ourselves and the the news really feeds off that absolutely uh, and I definitely share some of the same feelings as you as wanting to bring something positive to the world hopefully to uh counteract uh the darkness that exists and and the pain and the suffering which we see a lot more of even though there actually isn't that much of it I and mean, you really have to look for it uh, a lot in, absolutely in, especially in lovely places that we live in like Australia, um, you're really going out yeah, and trying to find the, the one or two or three bad things that happened. And the good things, unless they're really uh, miraculous, they're, they're not going to get coverage or certainly not as much because they just don't hit the bases that uh, it's believed are needed to make it newsworthy.
0: No, I mean, one of one of the great stats that, uh, you know, you may or may not be familiar with is like, you know, for every act of road rage, violence or abuse in Australia, there are 38 acts of kindness towards strangers. But, you know, where is that in our
1: media? Well, unless we have footage of it or it's, you know, entertaining visually, it's just, it's not, we're not going to mm. be interested in it. So, yeah. No. In- And I think these fires
0: are are a great example. I mean, there's these amazingly courageous people and and these people giving so much of their time, you know, to help. And, you know, we have seen a good amount of that coverage, but, you know, you'd love to see that sort of on a more regular basis is is just these random acts of kindness that, that we as Aussies, I think we are sort of known for in the world. We're very hospitable, very kind people. And, you know i think that the great thing that we're start, starting to understand about the the way that the human mind works is that there's this there's various reasons why we sort of copy what we see so when children you know see violence in the media they're more likely
1: to be violent themselves yeah. they need to sort of and be afraid and so then the thing i've noticed as yeah. well is that although the attitude is that you know violence and fear should be at the top of the bulletin actually often stories that inspire and are based on human interest and show some sort of incredible story of someone overcoming something, they're often the ones that actually go best online in terms of who engages with it.
0: Absolutely. And there's statistics that back that up. That Because uh, there's, there's some research that came out of America that sort of said um, there was a guy that studied uh, you know the New York Times website and what were people actually sharing. And I guess because we all have this persona that we we emanate online, people didn't want to be seen as these negative Nellies. So it is actually those remarkable stories that are are more likely to go viral, which is a great thing because the psychology of what we need in order to be happy is very well known. And so, for instance, as Barbara Fredrickson, who did a range of studies that that found that if you are to be feeling in your life that life is okay, you actually need three good things to occur for every one bad. So, you know, if you're, say, a cashier, you have three nice people come through and say hello and, and welcome, you know, and uh, and then you have one bad person, you'll feel that life's okay. If you flip that and there's three bad people and one okay, or even two and two, we're going to feel like life's crap. You know, we're going to be unhappy.
1: And you also have to recognize, you have to be able to recognize the good and appreciate it as well because, because of that Absolutely. conditioning. We're so much more likely to focus on the one negative thing and let that overtake our mind than the good things that happen. So you also have to be able to see those things as they happen and let them affect you just as much or more Mm. than the one bad thing.
0: Absolutely. And the chemicals in the human mind actually allow us to, to rapidly fall down the emotional scale of human beings. So you can be right up at optimism and then you can plummet down very quickly, but actually the human mind doesn't climb up so quickly. You can't suddenly go from right at the bottom to right at the top. You have to go through each stage. So yeah, I think there's a few things that work for us, a few things that work against us, but certainly I think the understanding of of our, our sort of, you know, this context that you've been uh, talking about of we've been alive for, you know, 200,000 years as human beings and we are no longer fighting saber-toothed tigers and we no longer have thousands of people wanting to come into our village and kill us, you know, at least for the most part in the Western world, and yet our mind hasn't sort of caught up with that, like it hasn't caught up with the fact You're talking about gratitude as well. You know, in the last 200 years, homicide rates have fallen by between 50 and 75 percent. Over the same period, the number of human beings dying before their fifth birthday has radically declined from 43.3 percent used to used to die in 1800. 43.3 percent of people didn't make it to their fifth birthday, whereas now that's just 3.9 percent. A 40 percent decline, just about.
1: I think the human race, statistically, in just about every category has improved and is continuing to absolutely. get better it's just that where yeah. attention goes energy flows and the focus because it's so much on the negative people believe that shadow to be much greater than it is because well, like we're saying you give a lot more attention to the dark than the light
0: absolutely and I think that's one of the things you know I've, I've found in in my journeys uh, you know around the world to various different countries is people that aren't, having this mass media sort of in their face all the time actually often have a much more positive outlook. Um, and they, I know that within the West there's also a pretty big movement of people, you know, not going and switching on their TV at 6 o'clock and watching the news, which might not be a good thing for you if you're working as a yeah, TV Yeah, but journo. also many,
1: many people, pretty much everyone that you talk to these days, they say they don't they watch the news because it's negative. No. Um, and there is, still, there is still plenty of positive stuff that goes on there. You know, in, within every bulletin there'll be a positive mm. story, but it's not what people are mm. going to remember. Which ironically is why the negative ones are in there so often.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's something that there just needs to be a, a slightly better balance. I mean, ninety three percent of Australians when we were uh, McCrindle Research Institute did a big study about this um, in Australia, and ninety three percent of people said that they'd like to see more positive. News that's 93% of Australians, so like you know, obviously, the media is not listening to them for one reason or another, or maybe it just doesn't sell. I, d- I mean, uh, I don't think that's the case, especially not these days. You know, I mean, you can sort of see that, um, I guess within a, a, the growing trend of people going online for their news, and then what people are sharing, like you're saying, is the more positive. Oh, so positive news because-
1: is harder, it's more work. Oh, right, because with negative stuff it's pretty straightforward you go to wherever the flashing lights went to you film the bad thing that happened and then you ask people about how bad that was you know it's boom 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 absolutely. it's all done whereas trying to find something positive you have to find that story then try and show it visually without stuff obviously being there um, there's just a lot mm. more that that goes into doing it but it's often more worthwhile as well absolutely
0: yeah and look I mean I guess it's it's uh, it's something that if we could understand as well, sort of the things that have happened more broadly over the last you know couple of hundred years in humanity, people are gonna not feel, I guess that, that weight of or that darkness uh, on them, which is you know things like you know eighty nine percent of people lived in extreme poverty in eighteen twenty, you know today that number's less than ten percent, ninety percent of people just about were illiterate. Again, in in the eighteen hundreds, and and you know now it's thirteen percent of people, you know, and we're richer than we've ever been. We've got less sickness than we've ever had, you know, all these great things that that humanity's done. But we're sort of you know drawn again because of our our sort of uh, our our past of wanting to be drawn towards those things that are immediately a threat to us.
1: Mm. But all we hear is that we're more depressed, more anxious than ever, especially in the Western world. <laughs>
0: Yeah, a- absolutely, and I think you know one of the things that really inspired me to to go to change from you know sort of this world of journalism to maybe uh, engaging in stories around happiness was actually uh, a study that came out I think in in 2012 that that sort of showed that loneliness had just become the number one uh, cause of depression in the Western world. Um, you know, loneliness in a world of seven point you know four billion people it was back then, and And that really struck a chord with me and I was was actually walking down uh, Rundle Mall with a friend um, just after I'd finished writing that article and and I said, you know, something needs to be done about this. And and we stopped at the the lights near the Hungry Jacks there and, and I sort of turned and looked around and I said, see, this is the problem. You know, no one was looking at one another. Everyone was either on their phones or not possibly making eye contact with people. Um, let alone smiling at people, and that was sort of, I guess, what ignited my whole uh, life since then, which has been about you know capturing stories that can maybe you know make people smile and understand why that makes them smile and maybe chase that more in their life. So,
1: what did that cost you? I mean, you're talking about going and making your own positive news agency and basically saying, you know, I'm. I want to be a journalist, I want to do stories, but I don't want to do these kinds of stories. I want to do the opposite side of the coin, but no sort... Well, I mean, there are outlets like this, but it's there's not really the, the framework as there is for the other side. What did you have to give up or, or spend to go and do that on your own?
0: Well, I sold my house, I quit my job, and I took up uh, some coaching positions within a, a country footy club so that I could sort of do that. Mm you know, but they're tiny sacrifices in the scheme of life. You know, um, people will go, oh, wow, you sold your house, you, you know, you quit your job, your, your cruisy government job, you know, working for the hospital uh, all to pursue this crazy dream, you know, but this crazy dreams become this this thing that's filled my heart and filled every piece of Fuck me yeah. as I've, uh, you know, come across millions of people across across the world who whose stories have absolutely changed my life. And the the beauty of being able to share them especially with this sort of online world means that you know 120 million people is how many people that my videos and photos have reached so you know we can all if we're all doing our little bit you know the world's getting better regardless i think that our openness to sort of you know multiculturalism and you know it doesn't matter if you're lgbtqia plus you know hopefully you can accept that you know love is love so there's lots of good things i mean i always talk about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, I probably wouldn't have been able to marry my wife, you know, because she's brown, she's from Sri Lanka, you know, that would have been a big no-no. You know, but today it's like who cares, you know. So there's so many positive things that have happened in the world and I think that when we can sort of understand that and be grateful for the time period that we're living in now where there's not that much that we actually need to stress over. People like to have stress and there's this sort of idea you know, that, that I've always sort of laughed at where, you know, you ask someone, oh, how are you doing? Oh, so busy. But that, that's not really a response. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and why is it something that, that, that's glorified? I think it's we want to feel like our time's worthwhile. So we want to, f- you know, wouldn't you love to hear it and, and wouldn't we be in a happier state if, you know, p- people said, how are you doing? Oh, did nothing today. I just sat there and sat on my thoughts and, and you know, I'm feeling great. contemplative you as fuck. Know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. How, how, how how happy would that society be? You know, and, and so, you know, I guess there's roles that governments need to play. There's roles that we as individuals need
1: to play. There's role that the media needs to play. You know, and I think some well, I are. guess that, that attitude doesn't feed the machine, does it?
0: Not really, but I think people are getting sick of the machine. Oh, yeah. I think that's sort of what we're seeing with all this anger coming out of, well, why has it taken us? for half of Australia to be on fire and then the other half's flooding now? Um, why is it taking, like, the giant slap in the face? And I think that the younger generations, you know, yourself, um, I'd say anyone lower than me or a few years ab- above me and I'm 33, um, we're, we're sort of sick of it, I mm. think. Um, we're sort of seeing that, that the baby boomers who, you know, dug up the earth and made billions of dollars and sort of, you know, took this post-war poverty into a post-war sort of, um, you know, abundance, um, yeah, that's great. We've all, we're all living in nicer houses and have better cars because of that. But we've seen our parents grow up and we've gone, has that created happiness? And so there's this thing called the Easterlin Paradox. It's, it's uh, you know, a famous economist from the US, you know, looked at the US and it's escalated, you know, its wealth threefold over, over a couple of decades after the war. But their the happiness levels weren't going up. So why why was that happening? And and sort of globally now, it's quite well known, I guess, in a Western context. You know, you don't you if you have thirty four thousand US dollars, if you earn thirty four thousand US a year, anything above that won't make you happier necessarily. Yeah. So and it's all relative. It's all sort of you know. Unfortunately, we have the this thing in pretty heavily ingrained in us called the social comparison theory, where I'm okay if I've got a pretty average life, but if I see that my neighbour's got an amazing life suddenly I feel less happy, even though my life prior to seeing his life was fine. So, you know, we're seeing that a lot with online, with this social media sort of uh, frenzy where everyone, you know, shows their highlights real, you know, because how often do you see on social media, you know, someone just saying, oh, yeah, average day today." you know, walked, got some lunch and, you know, you just don't see that. You see, oh, my God, I went to movie well with my family and we've got all these photos with, you know, all these characters and we ate ice cream and we did this and that. And, you know, that's not life. No. You know, that's sort of like 5 or 10% of life is, is those really bright, colourful, amazing moments. And most of it's sort of the, the, the clockwork stuff of, you know, you get up, you brush your teeth and, and that sort of stuff. And so we, we're, we've got this unrealistic sort of expectation. A lot of people see me travelling online because I guess I, I sort of update my Facebook only ever, you know, if I'm travelling so that my family knows I'm safe. You know, and people go, oh, you're always traveling? Like, wow, that must be amazing. And it's like, well, yeah, but I'm not traveling for most of the year. I travel a few months a year normally, and that's obviously a huge privilege. Mm. But actually, like, most of my life is just the same as anyone else. It's just I've chosen to sort of follow my dreams, which is the only real difference. You know, it's not that I'm alone in this pursuit. A lot of people, I think, are, are waking up. I mean, I remember interviewing a whole lot of people on Wall Street and the older guys I interviewed were saying, now, this is where, you know, the center of, uh, you know, the financial universe is and, you know, we're just here to make money. And then the younger people you'd talk to there are like, no, nah, I'm here for a year or two and then I'm out, you know, because there's bigger things going on in life. I want to be a musician. I want to be, you know, uh, an artist. I, I, I want to spend time with my family. So, you know, I think people are growing growing up, you know, in this day and age and it's because of our privilege of this younger generation that we've never had to really worry about money and whereas our parents' generation probably had to. But I think younger people are, are sort of waking up to this idea that there's maybe a little bit more um, to this idea of sort of pursuing our own sort of authentic life that's not in one of those boxes that I was talking about, That that's not necessarily just for the sake of mum and dad or, or for the sake of looking rich. Um, so I think that's sort of the next evolution that that we're seeing already uh, in a lot of Western countries and we'll start to see in the developing world as well is people going... You know what? I actually don't want any more money. I mean, I've said that in my life. I said I do, I, I work twenty or thirty percent. That gives me enough money to to live fairly comfortably with my wife as well. Working, you know, I don't want any more. Mm. So if if clients come to me and say, "Oh, here's half a million dollars to go make this, you know, ad about cars or whatever it might be," I'd say, "No, I, like I'm just not interested." Sorry, mm. you know, because you know, I guess it's about being authentic to who we are and what drives us and And I'm such a privileged sort of person to be able to sit here and say this stuff and I understand that because I've travelled to some of the poorest countries in the world. But, you know, I mean, that's that's the ultimate dream is to follow our dream. So, you know, I'm so lucky and so happy because I can do that and I just implore everyone to to sort of sit in silence for long enough without your phone near you. You know, every morning I go running for 30 minutes without a phone, without anything, and that sort of sets me up for the day to, to sort of you know think about who i am what i'm going to do today um and and gets me off to a happy start to every morning and i think you know it's something that most blokes could do um in australia you know we've got a beautiful country to run around and um you know whatever ticks you know tickles your fancy you go for a walk or you know push some weights or whatever just you know go out and Smell the roses, so to speak, and realize that you're part of this world and, and we're all connected, and our suffering's connected, our happiness is connected and um, you know then you're going to feel less alone as well, so you know like I did as a kid, and I've come to understand that and and that's sort of why I guess I'm a pretty happy person
1: today yeah. um so what is a million smiles
0: so a million smiles was was started um, sort of as an evolution of our world today, so i i I wanted to just do something. To, to sort of provide people um, with the impetus to, to just go and smile at other people. And I, I sort of thought oh, I'll travel around the world and capture photographs of people smiling and, and do some videos as well and sort of ask people what's behind that smile. So what's behind the smile of, of the man with no legs in Cambodia who's had him blown off um, by a landmine? What's behind his smile? What allows him to smile? And maybe, you know, by understanding his story, it might inspire, you know, some people maybe in Australia to to be grateful for what they have and then they might smile more. And, and you know, it was just, a, I guess, about as well the simplicity of, of smiling at people on the street, not necessarily in that creepy way <laughs> um, but, you know, like, you know, just acknowledging that you're actually in this world with other people instead of maybe being on your phone sort of 99% of the time as most people are when they're walking along the street and getting hit by cars or falling off cliffs as you see in Sydney when they're trying to take selfies. So, you know, it, we've just become a bit obsessed with this virtual world and we've sort of, uh, a lot of the stories and stuff, you know, that I've, I've captured overseas in countries where people just don't have phones a lot of the time uh, are about that life was a little bit simpler and maybe a little bit happier before this whole sort of paradigm of having this virtual world existed. So, yeah, I, I mean, there's so many elements, you know, to A Million Smiles, but it's effectively, you know, capturing and sharing stories that can inspire people to to smile and chase their happiness.
1: And how are you capturing it with footage or photos?
0: Yeah, yeah, photos and footage, um, which can all be seen on our, our Facebook page or website, um, which is a amillionsmilesmovie.com. So, you know, but I'm, I've actually just finished writing a book that should be published later this year. Oh, so that's sort of like that's a real melting pot of all the best of the best, you know, stories that have really impacted my life as well as, you know, my life stories uh, sort of intertwined throughout that. And it looks at, I guess, the journey of what my mind and heart have sort of felt throughout this as I've seen, you know, people dying in front of me. I've, I've been to war zones and, and you know, uh, seen some of the richest people and the poorest people in the world and look at, well, who is, you know, who are the happiest people, and what are the happiest places and what are the happiest ideas on earth? So, you know, it goes from anything from religion to how do we find our purpose in, in life? Or, you know, are we happier living as a survivalist based, you know, being, say, in a village in Africa, or are we happier in this sort of opportunistic based life that we have in in a lot of Western countries where we have so much in front of us, but is that so much actually now overwhelming us? So there's a lot of questions that the book asks, you know, and a lot of different cultures and societies that I've been lucky enough to, to visit that have taught me so much about happiness. And, you know, I, I just have the privilege of passing that on now.
1: And what are some simple things that you can list that you have learned about happiness?
0: Just actually be still and have nothing in front of you, nothing in your life, and just sit with who you are and it's a really difficult thing for a lot of people um and just see what what sort of words come into your 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 mind whether it's the universe or god or whatever people want to say talking to you or that that little inner voice normally has uh, everything we need in it if we can just shut up for a second uh which is a really difficult thing but you know i think like the maasai warriors that I, i went and lived with for for a short period A lot of them had been taken out of their traditional way of life, I guess, like similar to the Aboriginal people in Australia, but some were still living that traditional way. And that taught me a lot about, I guess, the simplicity. They don't have cars. Uh, There was one bloke in the village that had a, a phone and they were pretty happy. And I think most of us are pretty happy when we're out camping and we don't have reception and that sort of stuff. So I guess it's just more isn't more. You know, I've seen that just time and time and time again is more isn't more like I said before, you know, you can make more money but it won't make you happier and actually like being strong and willed enough to live by that, like that's a really hard thing. I think a lot of us know a lot of the deep wisdom that I've found in the world. A lot of us know that but it's actually having the strength to be able to stand next to your neighbour who's got a massive house and go, I'm okay with my small house. You know, I'm okay living in a cow dung hut in the middle of Uh, nowhere in in Kenya and I'm a Maasai because if I chase this other thing, then I'm going to have to sacrifice sort of, you know, my family and the way that we live now. So because there's always sacrifices. Women's empowerment, for instance, you know, is something I'm very interested in. It's great that women have exactly the same rights as men, but does that mean that both parents should be working all the time? Well, no, because, I mean, the happiest families that I've seen are certainly you know, where there's at least whether it's the mother or father at home. We just need to, you know, question whether more is more, I think, you know, and and whether or not actually we can create more by being grateful for what we have. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's just a few of the lessons, but, you know, I could go on all day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What surprised you about people through your travels?
0: People are good. Yeah, most people are good. Uh, Most people don't want to hurt you. Most people want the world that we all I think, sort of dream of unless you're some sort of sociopath or or the likes of Trump who sort of, you know, is probably a sociopath, but also, you know, has a a greedy brain. Um, So most people you can trust. There's some people that are really desperate and, and might try and play you out in, you know, I've had scams in India and Africa and these places, but, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of people are kind beyond words. You know, the amount of people that have opened up their homes and given me, you know, a cup of tea when, you know, or their last biscuit and they probably don't know when they're going to eat again. You know, humans are, are incredible when we are open and when we share and, and I've seen a lot of that. And, and that's something that every Australian for sure could learn from some of these really simple villages I've, I've been to where people share and talk to their neighbour and live with less and they, they could pursue more, but they choose to just live as they are because they know that they have enough.
1: How are they, how are they able to share you know, their last meal or do those things when they're in that situation? What is it about them? What do they understand that allows them to live that way?
0: I think that they understand. I mean, I was, I was just sort of doing a final proofread of my book and I was, I was reading about this lady in, in Cambodia who'd been shunned by her community because she had hiv and unfortunately the, the community you know lacks education around hiv and they think that if you touch that person um you'll get hiv and so she was sort of pushed out to live by herself and she actually adopted um this other girl who she noticed uh, was you know also living by herself out in this swamp um and she had hiv as well the other the other girl and you know so. I went and interviewed them, and and they were probably the poor, poorest of the poor that I've sort of seen anywhere in the world. And they did give me their last, well, what may have been their last biscuit, you know, and a cup of tea, and and these sorts of things. And what allows them to do it is that I guess maybe someone's done it for them once, or or they just understand what kindness is, you know. That that you know adopted daughter who that lady's brought in. I mean she would be dead. I mean, they both may be dead right now. And and that's sort of, I guess, the thing is that we, the privileged of the world who don't have to worry about a lack of education or any of these things, need to make the most of our life and need to to, to learn to do some of those things that, that others seem to do so easily, like sharing, because that's, I mean, that's the thing I noticed, I guess, in America as well, and statistics sort of back this up actually, which I was surprised to, to sort of see African-Americans to me were much happier than than any other culture within America. And that's because unfortunately they're still marginalised and they're still poorer, but that actually being a bit poorer meant that they relied on their neighbours. more. And more community. It um, meant that they had a stronger community. So it's actually, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's there's this sort of strange, strange thing that happens when we, you know i can be independent i've got so much money i've you know my wife and i we can just
1: live yeah, by ourselves that here. isolates you
0: yeah it actually isolates yeah. you uh, fair dinkum and i mean you know african americans you know uh, have the highest rates of incarceration and we, we all know i guess about black lives matter and and all the horrible things that they've been put through and yet there's this simplicity and beauty to the fact that they'll walk past and say hello to one another or, you know, yes, there's dangerous areas that I've been through, but still those people are so warm and, and, and open. And I think that's because they know, you know, what the other alternative is, which is to be, you know, persecuted for being different or um, to be looked at like an animal. And, you know, they don't want to perpetuate that. And that's what we've all got to say as human beings is I don't want to perpetuate the things I know are wrong in this world, you know, whether that be greed or pollution or or Creating, you know, this sort of environment that we've got now where we don't trust someone because, oh, you're in the different side of politics to me or whatever it might be. So, I guess, and that all comes back to those simple acts of sharing that, that these communities have certainly taught me. You know, I'll, I'll very rarely walk past someone in my apartment building and not say hello. You know, they, they often don't say hi back. Yeah. But that doesn't stop me the next time from saying hi. And one day, maybe they'll say hi to me. And I smile at people in the street. And that's you know an awkward thing sometimes because people sort of don't know how to react. But then one day, I was, I was walking along in the streets in Adelaide, and I smiled at this young girl who looked quite sad and depressed. And she, she ran after me and said, sorry, sorry, sorry to do this, but thank you so much for smiling at me you know, I, I've I've been suffering depression and, and, you know, I've had a terrible day and that meant a lot. So keep doing it. And, you know, that's what I've kept doing. And, and that's what we can all do. Smiles are free. Kindness is free. And that's sort of the commodity that I guess uh, a lot of us need to start trading in more rather than worrying about, you know, money, money, money all the time. It's sort of like, let's worry about sharing and caring. And, and I think we all know it deep down that that's what creates happiness. But, Again, it's having, I guess, the, the calmness in your life to sit, you know, and just think, okay, what do I want to do today? And, and a lot of us, hopefully, you know, um, would kindness and these things would come pretty quickly to our minds. Um, you know, how do you want to be remembered at your funeral? I always sort of come back to what will people say about you? Will they talk about, oh, man, he had the best sports car, this guy, like he was so cool and drink this most fancy champagne and that sort of stuff? Or will they talk about actually this guy gave up this, you know, wealthy life, luxurious life that he had to help people and, and that inspired millions across the world. I mean, think of the names that we know in the world, Mandela, Martin Luther King, Gandhi. These people didn't have money necessarily. They gave themselves to the world. And, and that's what we've all got to start doing, I think, is just giving ourselves to whatever purpose we feel driving us.
1: Mm. And what's the
0: power of a smile? It can just mean so much. You know, I've had people smile at me and, you know, I've been in in very dangerous situations at times and, you know, a simple smile just, like, disarms people. You know, at the moment we've got this heightened tension terrorist, you know, uh, you know there's a lot of Islamophobia, you know, or then it's, oh, we're scared of, you know, skinhead white people because there's all these, you know, Nazi parties starting up again in Germany or, or we're, we're just generally in this place of fear. There's always something to be scared of. There is. And, and again, the media drives that. But we're all, we're all sort of living in this sort of fear coma, comatose sort of fear state. And a smile just disarms people straight away. You know, we all know that feeling when someone, when a stranger smiles at us and you're like, oh my God, I'm a human and you're a human and you've smiled at me. And that's sort of, wow, that's strange, but it's beautiful. And it's warmed my heart and I don't need to be scared of you anymore. You know, and, and you know, we're not used to that. Again, 200,000 years of, you know, being scared of people coming into our village and stealing our crops or, or, or our women or whatever it might be, you know, has, has left us sceptical of people, but we don't need to be. People are kind. People are good, you know, and, and the more that we can understand that by travelling, you know, that's my great privilege is that I've travelled and I've seen the good in, in really all people just about you know, that I've come across. And, and the smile has saved my life, I'm sure of it. I've been into villages in, in really uh, uh, dangerous situations and I'll smile at people naturally and I'm normally wearing a T-shirt that says smile, you know, but maybe they can't read English. and, and But the smile itself, you know, means that instead of maybe going into their house and grabbing a gun because I've never seen a foreigner because I tend to go fairly off the beaten track, you know, or or... or thinking I'm there to steal their kids or whatever it might be. That's happened once, you know, I was in a, a village and the only white people they'd seen came and stole their children and adopted those children out. So, you know, in that place, my smile, you know, meant meant uh, they didn't trust me actually. And But then, you know, sitting down for long enough and getting a translator, then they did. So, But the smile is always disarming, I think. And, and then, you know, like that girl in Adelaide, you know, it, it changed her day and, and that in turn changed my day knowing that I'd, being able to help her just feel a bit more connected, a bit less lonely. I think that's the real power of a smile it's, it's the connection that comes with it, and it's so simple.
1: So is love and goodness more powerful than fear and pain? Absolutely. I think we've shown that over a very long
0: period of time, the whole of human history. I mean, love will eventually win, and we're sort of seeing that with the fact that, you know, I can marry a brown woman who's from Sri Lanka you know, and 50 or 60 years ago, I probably couldn't do that. Or we're seeing that in Prince Harry saying, actually, the love for my wife and my child is more important than me wearing this royal crown. You know, so love is going to triumph. I mean, we're seeing, you know, certain church groups say, actually, yeah, look, maybe Jesus was actually about love for all people and so therefore the LGBTQI plus community is welcome here because Jesus would have brought those people closer to him as he did to all the marginalized groups. So we're seeing, we're seeing love triumph at the moment. There's, there's certainly um, an element of the world and I'm not naive or stupid where you've got your, your Donald Trumps and, you know, various other entities across the globe who are sort of trying to hold on to that white male sort of superiority that's existed for so long. But I think love's going to overcome them because, you know, love brings people together, fear divides people. And eventually, I think, uh, especially these younger generations that we're seeing now, you know, understanding the transformative power of, of kindness and of love and the simplicity of living with a little bit less, I think that's that's a real new concept and, and that allows more space and more time for love and connection. And I think climate change, look, to be honest, climate change is the ultimate. If, if we as a world don't come together, then we're all doomed. So, you know, if, if we don't work out how we're going to help all the refugees that, you know, end up existing over the next 20 years from countries like Bangladesh or Tuvalu or, or the Pacific Islands or Japan, wherever it's going to get these hugely uh, high tides and, and things that wipe out um, their infrastructure, if we don't learn how to come together and actually work together, we're stuffed. You know, so like it or not, we're going to have to learn to love and connect. Um, I think but I think if we can do it proactively and, and I think we're starting to see that in, in a lot of elements like Australia right now, you know, when push comes to shove, you know, we haven't all gone and bashed one another and said, Oh no, you know, bloody, you don't you don't these firemen need to come with me and you know, you don't you shouldn't have firemen in your area and let's have these guys here. You know, uh, we've we've actually worked together. It uh, brings out the best in us. It does. It does absolutely our struggle as humanity brings out the best in us.
1: Yeah. Shouldn't, shouldn't take that tragedy and, and trauma to make people stand up and be connected. <laughs> no.
0: no, but if it has to, then it will. And and that's sort of like, you can't just keep taking from this world. I mean, mother nature doesn't care about us, you know, mother nature just is. And, you know, if we can exist in balance with mother nature, it's provided us with everything that we've ever needed as a human species And yet we're threatening that balance right now. And Mother Nature, you know, coughs or Mother Nature sort of cries a little bit and suddenly we're flooded out or, you know, we've got hurricanes, we've got fires and and we understand our place is that we're not at the centre of the universe. You know, nature will be just fine once we're dead. You know, so we need to respect nature and and the environment and realise that we don't own it, it is a gift to us. You know, and, and I think that when we can do that, you know, we're going to see a, a happier humanity but also just like, you know, we're going to be able to connect around how we need to live as human beings, which is sustainably, which means sharing more, which means, you know, helping your neighbour, you know, it means doing things that are selfless. So because, you know, if if people keep taking and taking, if our generation decides, nah, let's be like, you know, the, the boomers who – I think unknowingly to some degree, so it's not necessarily their fault, but just dug these big holes, extracted all the gas and oil from the earth, and burnt it for huge profits. If if we and our generation keep doing that, you know, we're we're going to be in a world of hurt. So you know, we've got to be able to be selfless enough, you know, and that might mean some pain, some immediate pain, higher electricity bills because we go actually let's get rid of our coal power plants right now. And eventually it's going to be cheaper to to have the sun powering us anyway because the sun's always there and we don't need to dig the sun up or anything like that. So, you know, eventually it's going to be cheaper. But yeah, I think we're going to need to work together. and, And I think we're starting to see that amongst younger generations particularly.
1: What does it take to be positive?
0: Being positive for me starts with actually like looking at myself. So that morning run that I go on for 30 minutes is just for me and, you know, because if I'm not happy and if I'm not actually, you know, in a positive mindset for that day, then I'm just going to put myself out onto the, the rest of the world in a negative framework. You know, so if I, if I wake up and I just turn on the news or, or f- want to feel down about the day, I've got to realize that I'm going to reflect that onto others and then they're going to reflect it onto their friends and their friends and and suddenly we have a a very negative uh, sort of world, which is partly what we see at at the moment. But if we can be positive, you know, which is something that I, I sort of, as I run, I sort of meditate in a sense and I'm thinking about what can I do for the world today? And, you know, that always gets you, anything that's selfless gets you off to a pretty positive mindset, I think you know, oh, wow! Well, I can help this person today. I'm going to share this video, which is hopefully going to transform some lives. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. Like the small acts, like smiling at people, deciding to, to, to say hello to people in your building, you know, get to know someone new each day. There's lots of little tactics you can have. Or, you mm-hmm. know, one of the biggest things that I've done, you know, quite a while ago now, but it certainly is a great thing for people to start with, is every night before you go to bed, write three things that you're grateful for that day. You know, and suddenly you look back at those, you know, hundreds of little post-it notes and you go, geez, I don't have really that much to complain about, do I? Because I'm living in Australia. You know, I, I understand my privilege and, and my luck. So there's, there's lots of little things that we can do to, to get off to a positive start but also to maintain that positivity because that's one of the hardest things is like enjoy the shit that happens in your life because, you know, that, that's life you know, Jill Hicks is a, is a good friend of mine. And, and, you know, she, you know, got her legs blown off in the London bombings, but she doesn't take painkillers because she says, I want to experience a full myriad of life's ups and downs and life's pain and life's suffering, because that's life. You know, so I guess it's actually rewiring our brains a little bit to not want to live a life free from suffering because a life free from suffering means it's free from emotion and free from the great things that we are as human beings, which is loving creatures. You know, so I think with love, there's always going to be pain. And if you care about the world, you're always going to be hurt by the world. But that doesn't mean you stop loving or stop caring. You know, it means that, that you just understand that, that part of life is the suffering and it's the suffering in my life that I've seen and experienced myself that's actually made my life right now, which is such a happy life, feel happy because without the darkness, I don't think we understand the light. You know, they they sort of work in tandem. So the dark days that I've had, I've had a crap week up until yesterday. You know, last week was terrible due to, you know, a number of things within my family. But then yesterday, you know, I overcame a number of those things, had a couple of really good conversations. And suddenly today feels bloody brilliant, you know. So Mm. don't, I, I guess being positive doesn't mean not having negativity in your life not having suffering in your life. It just means actually seeing that suffering and putting it in perspective. You know, for me, a lot of the time that'll be about understanding my privilege. So, you know, yesterday there's a a spa in our building and it was half empty and I was a bit annoyed because I wanted to go for a spa. And I was like, yeah, but what what a lucky bastard I am that I have a spa in my building. And yeah. that I get to go and sit in it most days. And, you know, Hakim in Afghanistan doesn't have a spa. I know that. And so, you know, it just puts things in perspective. Perspective's everything. It's the whole wall game, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I think to come back to your point before about, like, what's the power of love, I was just remembering, you know, one of the things that, that I was so staggered to, to come across. So the longest ever study into human adults, which is by Harvard, um, they, they asked the guy who's run it for the last 30 years, you know, what's the one finding? And and these professors with long titles after their name often like to make things sound complicated, you know, or, or want to th- make it sound really scientific and these sorts of things. And, and I love that this guy, he just said like the words, just three words, love is everything. And then he said the words full stop, but, you know, love is everything full stop. And how, you know, that's a guy who, you know, is, Employed by Harvard to run the longest ever study into adult human beings. And and what have you found over 85 years? Love is everything. It's bloody simple. It sounds pretty simple, <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Exactly. When you say it
1: like that. <laughs> what would you have missed out on had you taken your life?
0: Um, look, I think if I, if I had have taken my life, I, I, I think, you know, I wouldn't have enjoyed the, the lightness that came after understanding that darkness and how important that darkness is actually in our lives. I think if a lot of people that are in that dark stage can actually go, this is really important. This is actually where I'm going to grow from. I think that's a really important thing for people to understand that, uh, as I said, a life void of suffering is no life at all. It means you haven't experienced love. It means you haven't experienced anything that's worth experiencing in the world, you know, because with all those good things, bad things will come, you know, not necessarily Uh, avoiding suffering, you know, avoiding suffering is is something we can't do if we're going to live a full life. So, you know, when you're in those dark times, I guess it's, it's going, actually, I'm going to accept that this is happening in my life. My sister is in hospital, my parents are largely ignorant that I exist. But, you know, it's sort of like, what would you tell your younger self, I'd say these things, you know, but you will get through it and it will make you better and it will make you stronger you know and 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 you know it will make you understand the full breadth of life which is you know the absolute darkest darkest moments and the absolute lightest moments and everything in between so i think embracing all of life is really a great lesson for anyone that's maybe struggling or suicidal and and going you know there there will be another another day tomorrow and it may well be a better day and if i can actually you know get up tomorrow and go out on the street and just smile and make the difference in one person's life then i'm a bloody hero you know and we can all be heroes when we do those sorts of things we can't be unhappy
1: i don't think yeah so it so- sounds like what you're saying is that you know if you're at your lowest point if you can find the strength to go and help someone yeah that will help you
0: absolutely and that's really important to, to see that we're not alone. We're not suffering alone. You know, there's there's not one person that's likely to be committing suicide. I mean, there's every minute there's 40 people committing suicide across the world. So you're not alone in your thoughts. And therefore, maybe if you share some of your suffering with, with someone else and, and say, look, I'm feeling like this, you know, maybe, maybe you'll be able to sort of uh, go on to see that you know, your life is worth living because everyone's life is worth living. That's why you've been put here. You know, you've just got to find, find the, the juice that makes you feel excited about life. And normally that's about being selfless and about helping others. So if you don't feel good about yourself, go out and help someone else and, you know, see if that, that changes things. Cause I, I think in my experience, that seems to be a pretty good, pretty good fix.
1: Perfect, Mike. I love that perspective. Um, that's, very powerful and what we're interested in in doing as well so thanks for bringing what you bring to the world and I can hear in your voice that you're going to continue to push that and and grow that and try and get other people to see that in the world you know until you can't anymore so I think we need more people like you trying to bring that to earth you know despite what you have to give up in order to to do that and then I suppose the benefit is that while you materially you might struggle for a while and not have what you would have had you you have a a, a richness in your life and, and your soul that you figure out is actually more worthwhile anyway so it's a win-win it's all about sharing absolutely it's all about sharing the whole the whole game is about sharing and
0: love one comes with the other
1: if you got something out of this episode please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts it really helps us grow the show so we can keep bringing you the content that matters. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing and get involved, get onto the Youngblood Podcast Community Facebook group and follow Youngblood Podcast on Instagram. And if you're keen to get in touch with me, email Podcast all one word, at hotmail.com. This podcast was produced by the talented Rory Noak at Podbooth. You can check them out. at